All right, we are back. We talked last week briefly about the passing of astronaut William R. Pogue. and said that we'd have to talk about it more on this week's show, at which time I could uh, interject some quotes from his book, which impressed me when he came out many years ago. It was titled, How Do You Go to the Bathroom in Space? Because, frankly, those sorts of practical problems are the, <laughs> the kinds of things we think do need to get addressed from time to time. So in the book, Pogue answers 187 questions. Number 66 was indeed, how did you go to the bathroom? Noted Pogue, on Skylab, for the first time in space, we had a separate room for a toilet. It was called the Waste Management Compartment. A funnel-shaped device was used to collect the urine. Air was drawn through the funnel to make sure the urine was pulled into the collection bag. The bag was changed daily. A commode or potty was used for solid waste collection. It was mounted on the wall. Remember, there's no up or down in space and was lined with a porous bag that was replaced after each use. Air was drawn through the bag to settle the waste. The bag containing the solid waste was removed after each use and dried in the heat slash vacuum chamber. All solid waste was dried, stored, and returned to Earth for medical analysis. And you think you have a bad job. (laughs) He went on... The toilet seat was made of a plastic-coated, stiff-cushioned material. A seat belt had to be used to keep the person's bottom from floating off the seat. Proper use of the toilet was essential if one wanted to avoid losing friends. Now, as I recall, Mary Roach talked a bit about this when, we, when, when she came on the show to, to plug her book, Packing for Mars. But I got, I got to say, this is really a daunting prospect about going on the space voyages. Really makes me think it's time they develop some artificial gravity up there by spinning the uh, spacecraft around. I mean, if Stanley Kubrick can do it back in 1969 and 2001, A Space Odyssey, why can't we do it in reality? Well, actually, there's a whole bunch of technical reasons, but they should still do it, doggone it. Because I want to go into space, and I don't want to use a space toilet. Anyway, question number 17 was, do you look the same in space? Pogue said, no, facial appearance changes quite a lot. I was really surprised, if not shocked, the first time I looked in the mirror. I didn't look like me anymore. Loose flesh on the face rises or floats on the bone structure, giving a high cheekbone oriental appearance. The face also looks a bit puffy with bags under the eyes, especially during the first few days. And the veins in your forehead and neck appear swollen. After about three or four days, some of the facial puffiness, edema, and vein enlargement goes away, but your face still looks quite a bit different. Asked in question 61, was your sleep restful, the same as here on Earth? Pogue said, yes, but I think there was a difference. Tests made on Skylab showed there was a change in the time you spend at the different levels of sleep. Also, many astronauts have been bothered by a peculiar effect known as head nod. During full relaxation and sleep, the head develops a nodding motion. This motion is thought to occur as a result of blood pulsing through the large arteries in the neck. Some astronauts have been awakened by nausea symptoms, which they blamed on the head nod. Others have noticed the head nod, but did not feel any ill effects. And in question number 106, what color is the earth and what colors do you see? Pogue said, the colors on land vary. Mountains in a non-desert region are usually nondescript dark brown or charcoal. High peaks and slopes are often snow-covered. Some appear coal black, like the Black Hills of South Dakota and the interior ranges of northwest China. Some desert mountains are reddish-brown. Forests are dark, almost black, except for the equatorial rainforests of Brazil and Africa, where they appear a mottled dark green. Field crops and rangelands are also dark green, but lighter than the forests. New growth of field crops and grasses are a brighter green than maturing crops. 
The only bright green vegetation I saw was on small tropical islands. Coral reefs and shallows were a beautiful shade of blue-green. Many lakes are light blue or blue-green from algae growth. The Great Salt Lake in Utah is crossed by a rail line causeway which divides it into two separate bodies of water, one red and one green. The color difference is caused by different algae and marine organisms which have adapted to different conditions present in the separated lake. Although the ocean in general is dark blue, ocean currents may appear green from marine organisms that are carried by the currents. Occasionally, large patches of red, red tides, appear within the green. When this happens, it creates a beautiful swirl pattern of green and red. The Falklands current off the coast of Argentina is an iridescent bright pea green. He notes the sands of the Sahara and Arabian deserts have the most beautiful colors on the surface of the earth. From space, these deserts look like a beautiful abstract sand painting. It is a pattern of mixed textures and varying shades of brown, black, tan, red, maroon, and orange. Much of the interior of Australia is a rusty brown color, which is uniform over wide areas. We found Australia very easy to recognize after a week in orbit and referred to it as the Red Continent. Anyway, very cool book from what sounds like a pretty cool guy. It was noted that after his uh, service as an astronaut, Pogue worked as a consultant for aerospace firms, telling interviewers he was especially proud to have helped improve the design of spacecraft toilets, showers, and motion sickness bags. And I'm sure he was. Let's slip in one brief obituary, that of Rachel Bunny Mellon, who died at age 96 a couple weeks back. She was raised in fabulous wealth and married to more of it. She never had to work a day in her life. But she would later in life become quite an accomplished gardener. When her friend Jackie Kennedy moved into the White House, Mellon was commissioned to redesign the Rose Garden. Rachel Lowell Lambert, nicknamed Bunny by her mother, was born in Princeton, New Jersey, to a family that had made its fortune with Listerine. She later married Paul Mellon, the son of tycoon and Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon. Oh, I just realized I did my math wrong. She didn't die at 96. She died at 104. And it turns out that when she was nearing 100, she fell under the spell of Democratic presidential candidate John Edwards. It was she who provided him with $725,000 in what campaign aides called bunny money. And supposedly without her knowledge, the funds went largely to support Edward's pregnant mistress, Riel Hunter. Mellon later told actor Frank Langella after Edward's disgrace, I suppose it's my own damn fault. He was so attractive. And you know, I'm weak on good looks. All right, we've got about three minutes left in the show, and I think I will devote that to the column in last week's Sacramento Bee by Sam McManus. The title is Funny. Taping a television sitcom isn't all laughs. Mr. McMillan would add, sometimes it isn't any laughs. Sam poses the question of how you would indulge your Aunt Marge from Kenosha, who comes out to California and wants to see them tape a live TV show. To quote from the piece, getting free tickets, at least to shows shot at Warner Brothers, is as easy as a mouse click, but it will be the last easy thing in the process. He notes, it's a major time suck. Hours of queuing and waiting and waiting, and queuing. That's even before the six-hour taping of a 22-minute sitcom. Sam McManus notes you will never get back those precious grains of sand through the hourglass. He adds that a sturdy bladder is essential, for once you've gained entrance to the hallowed inner sanctum at the stage set, potty breaks are all but verboten. He notes that you must be peppy on demand, pumped up, and laugh uproariously at the punchline, even if it's the 12th time that you've heard it. Anyway, 
What follows is one man's experience at a midweek taping of CBS Monday night hit, Two Broke Girls. Mr. McManus notes that he was uh, deceived a bit by printing up tickets at home where it said arrive at least one hour before the 5 p.m. taping, but found that when he actually got there an hour and a half early, there were 300 people in shorts and flip-flops sitting on portable rows in front of the Two Broke sign. Knowing that the audience was for only 150 to 200, he knew his odds were not so good. Sam does provide some background uh, for those unfamiliar with the show, like myself, noting that in a quick aside that um, Two Broke Girls is about these two girls in Brooklyn, and, and, and they're broke. And they work at a diner, and they try to get a cupcake side business going when not firing off sexual entendres and innocuous ethnic slurs at other cast members. Apparently, the show's a ratings champ. Referring back to the crowd gathered for taping, McManus notes there was no organized front of the line. People sat haphazardly, holding their printed out tickets in one hand and a picture ID in the other, noting that so far this was about as glamorous as waiting in line at the DMV. That several scurrying Warner Brothers pages, clad in black pants and white shirts and carrying clipboards and walkie-talkies, wielded enormous power, and they certainly seemed to be tripping on it. He notes that after about 20 minutes, the pages pointed to a row of about 15 people seemingly at random and summoned them forward. This was after a group of VIPs, none of which he recognized, were ushered in. Waiting for the next round of decisions, he unsheathed his iPhone, was told by a woman across the aisle, Oh, you don't want to do that. You can't bring in phones. You better take it back to your car. Taking a chance at being passed over in the interim, he did so. He didn't miss the cattle call. A few minutes later, a particularly bossy page stopped at the row in front of his, said, no one here needs to pee, noting it sounded like a statement, not a question, followed by, okay, come with me. McManus notes that he was not liking his chances about this point. Then the damnedest thing happened. A page stopped at the head of our row, pointed a Lee's press-on nail at me and said, I'll take you five. Turns out we were the last one selected. Unfortunately, we were ushered out before the bad news was broken to the rest of those losers. Notes the piece, another page had us line up single file like kindergartners on a field trip and marched us out on the lot past Forest Lawn Drive and passing trailers and sets for Heart of Dixie and Two and a Half Men. At last, they reached stage 21, found that the only open seats left were in the last row with limited sight of the set because of overhanging lights. Note Sam, it was then my Irish luck kicked in. A page asked, is there anyone here by themselves? I was the only one, and I was ushered to the front row seat reserved for a no-show VIP. He noted he had barely time to gloat because a large bald man named Roger at the foot of the seats bellowed into a microphone, put your hands together, we want you fired up. Roger is what the TV biz calls the warm-up, a comedian employed to prime the audience to laugh. Roger would be our guide and sidekick for the next four and a half hours, telling jokes between takes and scene changes. Sam Roger promised us candy and t-shirts, cupcakes, sandwiches, and water. He even promised cold hard cash if we'd made a lot of noise. Roger went on to introduce the cast, and the audience did Beatles on Ed Sullivan decibel screams for the two stars, Kate Dennings and Beth Bears. When the taping finally got around, the audience was instructed to either stay deathly quiet or laugh wildly, no in-between. He noted it was easy to do at first, but by take seven of the first scene in which the girls sell cupcakes to a red-headed Irish mom with a flock of red-headed kids, we knew what was coming but still had to laugh, quote, spontaneously, unquote. 
scene-ending quip, or in your case, Aaron, go training bra, just wasn't as funny after the seventh time. That scene, all of maybe three minutes, took 45 minutes to tape. The piece notes that the hours dragged on. Roger served as human amphetamine drip, controlling us to emote. He made good on those promises of goodies, too. We got bottled water at 7.07, cupcakes at 7.23, T-shirts at 7.51, sandwiches at 8.09, candy at 8.25, and more candy at 9.27 as the final scene wrapped. (laughs) Noted Sam McManus, people looked wearied as if they just sat through Wagner's ring cycle. Sam McManus wondered why it took so many takes to shoot a handful of scenes, noting that this was, you know, Two Broke Girls, not the Royal Shakespeare's Company's Two Gentlemen from Verona. The explanation apparently was that the show's creator, Michael Patrick King, bedecked in blue blazer and tennis shoes, apparently is a perfectionist. His production team, at least 20 strong, followed him flock-like. Not once the whole night did King laugh. He barely broke a smile. Mostly, he stood with arms crossed and brow furrowed, staring into the quad screen, showing the camera angles and halting takes to give stage directions. Sam concluded, I left sure of at least one thing. There's nothing funny about making a comedy. Anyway, pretty funny piece. Although I do want to note uh, that Sam is being a little bit non-politically correct, at least if Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook and Anna Maria Chavez of the Girl Scouts um, have their way. They're launching a campaign to ban Bossy. They claim that calling girls bossy discourages them from becoming assertive, confident, and opinionated, and can leave emotional scars that will make them less likely to seek out leadership roles later in life. So Sam, I guess you better watch your language if you're buying into this, although I'd have to add that I'm not. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time. And talk a bit about the connection between... Robert Koch, tuberculosis, and Sherlock Holmes. Who knew there was one? I bet you I'm gone.